Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at Reconditioning HQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the honor of speaking with Anne Hartley. Anne is a prominent Canadian athletic therapist, osteopathic manual practitioner, retired teacher, and author. She served for 32 years in the Bachelor of Athletic Therapy program at Sheridan College and has lectured extensively in both Canada and the United States. She is a female pioneer in the industry, having been the first female head therapist of a football team in Canada, the first female to attempt and pass the CATA certification exam, the first female AT to serve in an Olympic medical team at the Montreal Olympics among some several firsts. Beyond these firsts, she has been a member of the Canadian medical teams for several Pan Am Olympic, Paralympic, and International Games. She is a graduate of the Canadian College of Osteopathy with a diploma in osteopathic manual practice and a diploma in the science of osteopathy. She specializes in many different kinds of therapy, including sports medicine, fascial techniques, electrical modalities, acupuncture, craniosacral, and visceral therapy. She has been married for for 43 years with two sons and two grandsons and is still still maintains an active clinical practice specializing in athletic therapy and manual techniques and teaches throughout the world on many topics of expertise i'm honored to have her on the show today welcome Anne. Thank you, Scott. Lovely introduction. Thank you very much. Well, you got to call together all this, you know, as you said before we came on, we, when you get old, you have lots to talk talk about from what you do. We won't say how long I've been around, but it's a long time. Pioneer is the right term. Well, take me back. Where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Okay. And I was there for 10 years and then moved to Toronto, specifically in Etobicoke, and and have resided there since. And I also mm-hmm. uh, live here um, as a child from 10 on and, and now. Mm-hmm. What, was, what was sort of, uh, or if you sort of laid down on the grass and looked up in the stars when you were a little girl, what did you dream of doing? Um, I probably was too active to lie down. <laughs> 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 okay, well, when you I were up in a tree t- climbing, what were you going to do? <laughs> I, I just let whatever happened uh, happen. I was very, very athletic. I did every sport, and I loved every sport. And even as a child, I compete in the three-year-old, in the four-year-old, in the five-year-old running events, even though I was three, just because I was that much fun. Um, and did a phys ed degree, followed uh, athletic therapy, but I was very interested in injuries. And um, I did apply and get into um, Mac, McMaster mm-hmm. in medicine, and hurt my back um, shooting archery in uh, in uh, a teleconference Pan Am game situation. And I I 
was unable to. They gave me one year, and then I could go back and do it. I was thinking of um, being like a sports medicine family physician kind of person. Um, then I found out that Sheridan was starting an athletic therapy program, and I found this out from Chuck Bull, who was on one of the members of the organizing committee of this new Sheridan athletic training program. And uh, so he was also the team physician that sent me uh, and looked at my back. And subsequently, I had three back surgeries between 1975 and 1976 and uh, was unable to um, go back into medicine. So I stayed with athletic therapy, which I was a little bit overqualified because a lot of them were out of high school at that time. And uh, I, t- I took first year, and then I helped teach second-year labs. And then on graduation, uh, applied for a job with them and never looked back. Wow. So you're a real active kid. You, uh, you hurt your back. You, this, you sort of talked about how you got into athletic therapy. But when you say you were attracted to medicine, what was it that attracted you? Was it the being in service to others? Was it the fixing like something that was broken? Was it the investigative nature of, of it? What, what attracted you? I, I was very compassionate, and I could mm. sort of tell even with my friends when someone didn't feel well or something was wrong or, or when someone got injured, I wanted, wanted to help them. I was just a caregiver from day one, including birds and squirrels and anything else that tended to injure themselves. So I, I, uh, I was one of those people that always was there to try and help. And um, when I saw uh, sports and people get injured, I thought that, that was something I wanted to fix with them. And it was medicine in general, but I liked uh, sports. So doing the fixing for athletes was, was the first, was my first pick. So, you know, when, when I was reading about some of the stuff that you sent to me in your first, so to speak, what, what made you believe as a, as a young woman that this was something achievable considering that, you know, you didn't really have anybody to look up to. We can't grow this podcast without you, the listener, or the support of our amazing sponsors. This year, we are pleased to announce the support of Matrix Fitness, one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations in the world. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix Performance Team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and getting better. For more information, please request their sports performance package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Vilnive at matrixfitness.com, and mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. Well, what happened, I think, was I kept on thinking when I did the Sheridan program that I would be, I'd go back into medicine um, at Mac. But when that, I wasn't able to, I was enjoying um, the course at Sheridan and on its completion. And I was interviewed and offered the head therapist job and a part-time teaching job. I decided, well, I still was a little bit... Um, weak on one side of my body from the surgery and stuff. And I felt 
well, I'm, I'll get better and I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now. Hmm. And um, the first thing they did was put me with a football team with <laughs> Bernie Custis. And Bernie Custis was a quarterback with the Ticats years earlier. And um, John Cruikshank, who started the athletic therapy program to take care of his football team, and I was the first head therapist. So I went out to the field, and they were doing football training. I'd done the training uh, field placement for them the year before I was hired to do it. Um, Anyway, I went out, and uh, Bernie had them all exercising and doing exercises on the field, and I stood there. And he'd had to be six feet tall, and most of the players were, but a lot were my age. You know, I, like that's the other thing, because I was very young. Um, so, anyway, I went up to, to Bernie and introduced myself, and he go, looks at me, you know, and I have the a Canadian Tire uh, first aid medical tin box, you know, probably for tools, and I had stuff in there. And he said, and why are you here? And I said, I'm your head therapist. And he says, well, just go sit over there on the bench. And his eyes were just like saucers. Anyway, so he came over and one of the players uh, came up to me and said that something was bothering him or whatever. And he said, "You, what's the matter with you, boy? You go back out there. You go back now. Right. So I walked up to him and I said, I'm never going to tell you how to coach Bernie. And I'm never going to tell you which play on which player to use or whatever. But please don't tell me um, what I can do medically with the team. So he calls over the team. He says, boys, and all the whistles and all the guys come around. He gets down on one knee. He goes, if I tell you, you can go back on. And Ant says you can't get on back on. What are you going to do? He all said, we're not going back on. He says, no, no, you do what you say. <laughs> and then, then he says, okay. Now, if Ed says, you play this part on the field, are you going to do that? And they said, yes. And he goes, no, you're going to listen. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's how we started together. And uh, a, a wonderful gentleman. The team treated me like royalty. They were, they were great. Um, it, it was tough at times on the bus after they'd won and had a few drinks. But uh, they were always, I always remained very, very professional. And I, I had fun. I had a lot of fun at that time with him. But he was ever so careful, very professional, um, listened to everything I said. And we, we had a special eight-year relationship with uh, what was they called Bernie's boys and myself. <laughs> well, it was interesting. I think I said before we came on that I was chatting with Dexter Nelson and you guys are from a generation in athletic therapy where effectively people were learning what it is or was that you guys did rather than nowadays everybody knows what the position is and they seek to find that professional and then kind of offset that professional acumen to them and listen to what they have to say. So you just talked about it a little bit, but maybe elaborate a little bit more about the challenges of effectively teaching people what it is that you could do or you were there to do in those. Yeah. Well, um, as head therapist, I also ran Sheridan's clinic Hmm. And in Sheridan's clinic, um, we treated the Sheridan athletes. And so I was there at 10 till 3, pretty well treating, and did a bit of teaching in the morning before it. But I'd get calls um, from parents saying, well, what do, why are you putting ice on this? And I got calls from doctors, who are you? 
what kind of therapist that, you know, what, and I got actually the Oakville Physicians Group um, came after us that what is this program and what are you teaching and how, how do you think you're qualified to take care of these things? And they really were very hard, particularly on me in a clinic as a, as a woman, right? And we had two doctors, Dr. Vern Isaac and Dr. Murray Dugut, who were the physicians for Sheridan. And they were doing the preseason medicals. And I, they believed in athletic therapy because they were on the sidelines watching what, what we were doing and, and how I was taking care of the team and stuff like that. So Vern went to the Oakville um, teach, uh, uh, doctor's meeting and said, well, why don't you give them a try? This is what the program's about. This is what the curriculum's about. Um, and the care, as far as we can, we're concerned, is good. So he came back and told me that, and I said, invite them. Have them send me patients. Have them send. So he started within the college when other students had things, he sent them to our athletic therapy clinic. So suddenly it was a clinic more than just the athletes at Sheridan. It was the students in general. And then I got more flack because these students would go home or visit, and most of them were for the Oakville and uh, Halton, Mississauga areas, and they'd say, well, why is she taping this? How does she, what's she doing? So I decided it was better to join them than fight them, and I had a 12-month contract. So in my, when the football was over, I uh, volunteered at uh, the hospital with the orthopedic surgeons. So there were three main orthopedic surgeons that took me under their wing and taught me how to test and treat and do stuff in their fracture clinic, which was two days of the week, Tuesday and Thursday. So when they started showing me all this stuff, it got to the point after I did it for two summers in a row that I would triage the patients. I would test them and say, no, this one can go home with ice. No, you have to see. And then I told them what you have to do this for me. So they started to come to Sheridan Monday nights and look at the athletes, and I had a fracture clinic at Sheridan. Well, once I had the orthopedic surgeons coming to Sheridan and whatever, there was was no more questions. It, and we, we all worked as an incredible um, network. And through that, athletic therapy in Oakville got to be accepted, and, and then it was only our students after that had problems because everyone says, what's the difference between you and a physio? Or what's the difference between you and massage therapists? Out in the community, we weren't. But in Oakville and vicinity, we, were, we, we started it all. Mm-hmm. But it took, and people still ask what's an athletic therapist, you know, in some parts. But it is pretty, pretty, uh, we're, we're 50 years now getting mm-hmm. it. So, so. You, you've always that. been, um, a, I would say, from, you know, from the connection that I've had with you over the years and what I've seen you do at the CATA and stuff in your own professional career. You've been a bit of a, call it an instigator of expertise and driver of, you know, going after what could be better for the profession in some sense. I know you were, you were a huge um, sort of driver of, of the, the knowledge around modalities for a long time. Now you have more of a clinical practice and the things that you're doing or, and, and just the story you just told about, you know, like getting the orthopedic surgeons to come and spend time, you know, that's, that's not a, an average character trait. Where does that come from in you sort of this, this sense that you could sort of just push that, 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 
that rock, so to speak? I don't know. I think I have very um, independent, tough parents. Hmm. Um, I I had a gang when I was like four or five and six. So there was a whole group of us on the street, girls and kids, boys and girls. And our parents were all the mothers on the street kind of thing. And I always was so active. I was the one who said, well, why don't we build a fort in the park or community center? Or I was the one, and I always sort of felt comfortable in, in sort of a leadership role, not as feeling I was a leader, but feeling I want to do something more because I'm bored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd instigate, and then we'd all do it. Um, and I think the other, the other thing is that um, I, I felt that whatever I was doing was it had to be done that way. That was the important way to do it. Mm. And so I wouldn't just teach how to use a machine, for example, with modalities and plug it in. I wanted to know everything it did, physiologically, anatomically. And so I, I literally researched, and I still research. I, I just finished a talk in Germany on mild traumatic brain injury, and I brought it up to January 2020, all the latest stats, and I read 730 journals before I went between September and my February date. Like, I I just love to know more and learn more. Mm. So I was always motivated when I taught to tell them why things work and how things work. Um, I'm doing advanced work now in osteopathy on how to mobilize the 12 cranial nerves in the brain. And I'm lecturing on that internationally right now, which is um, my own work only from treating for 40 years and, and working with this stuff and concussions. And so it's always whatever's the latest. I, I did all right. research on Lyme's disease, you know, way, way before it was hardly around. Um, I have done anything that really interests me. I, I go to town on hmm. and I've always been like that. But there's, there's a marketing salesperson that probably comes from my father. He was a, a buyer for the tea company and he could sell. He could sell whatever he wanted to sell. He was great at it. And I think I sold knowledge mm. is what I ended up doing, taking that sort of focus and, and, and putting it into my teaching. Very cool. Our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com, is going virtual. The Reconditioning Level 1 has been turned into a complete online experience, and all the time-tested systems and processes are now available to you in 20 hours of online video modules and two virtual Zoom sessions. Reconditioning is a very powerful language and system of practice that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together in one complete package and helps you deliver the most powerful injury and performance solutions to your clients. Check them out at reconditioninghq.com today and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Uh, uh, to spin off of that a little bit, like you, you mentioned, you you went to Sheridan, you graduated, you were given this job as the head therapist. Now, from outside looking in, like that would be sort of unheard of today, where you went to a program and the next year you're getting the job as the head therapist, and then you're working in the faculty, etc. So go back to that time. How does how does how is that possible in essence? And then and, and what's the responsibility and and how do you feel it when you look back at that part, part of your life where all of a sudden you're thrust into this and, and now you're teaching and you're building a program that sort of from its from its neophyteness, so to speak. What, what was that like? Well. Well, some of it, um, I had a degree in physical and health education with a pre-med specialty at University of Toronto. Um, 
like to have that degree. And a lot of the, the students didn't have even that basic. Hmm. So when I went to Sheridan and taught and was head therapist, it was 50-50. And what I taught was biomechanics. And so um, I knew more than they did about biomechanics. <laughs> and then after I'd finished at Sheridan and taught and took all of the athletic therapy stuff, um, I felt like, well, I, I know more than my patient does. So I had a certain level of confidence with my background. Um, I think the other thing is, I think I was young and didn't worry. Like I just, <laughs> I wanted to do it, so I just did it. And and there were crises when it was difficult, and there was times where you know um, I would have to backtrack and say, "Is is this the right thing to do?" And and for example, I had a student when I first year of teaching. It was Ray Jones. I don't know if you know Ray Jones. He was the, with the, yeah, the yeah. Canadian basketball team. All those kinds of things. And he was 40 when he came back to take the program. And I'm, I was like 26. And um, he was maybe even older than that. I had certain people that were medics and paramedics that came back to the course. And I was very intimidated um, dealing with them. Hmm. Um, but we had, I had a supportive faculty, uh, Barry Bartlett and Everett Van Beek and uh, Clyde Smith at, at one time and Dan Devlin um, John Crookshank, they all were very supportive to me. I never felt put down. I never felt talked down to. Um, and I felt that I was part of a team mm. and, um, they were, they were good to me. And they, in the first years though, right until about 1984, they only took four women every year because there was no, there was no jobs for them. It was mm. a job situation. It wasn't because of that. And the other thing is we were a community college to serve the community, and we weren't. We were drawing people from across Canada. So having a female on the front of the paper, woman in men's dressing room, having a woman as the first one was a calling card to put on the front of the star. I have papers and stuff like that to get the students. And they might not have been on, you know, they might not have um, considered the course or known about it, but I was the person that was woman in men's change rooms in the 70s at the, they, it was in the press and how the wives didn't like it. And we, like, and I think uh, that helped fill the program <laughs> at the beginning too. As, as somebody who is definitely a pioneer, especially, especially from a female perspective in this world of therapy and sports medicine, um, what do you look at, back at most pridefully in some sense to where we are now? Because it's almost ironic, but there's, I think there's probably more women in athletic therapy now yeah. than there are men. So it's, it's kind of neat what's happened. Um, all sport was male-dominated um, all through the 70s and 80s. Women, women were used half the gym, didn't even get the whole gym, got the gym after the men were through if they were lucky. Um, the men always got the field for stuff, so women couldn't play field hockey until football was done. It just was a different time. Um, they had special events for the male stuff. Women were, 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 were not part of that. But after the 76 Olympics, it started to change, in my opinion, in that we started to have um, women competing in, at an Olympic level. And it was things like, like softball, 
It was things like basketball. And suddenly, um, the university started to consider women um, applicants, first of all, and secondly, women's teams. And they started to actually need someone to take care of their needs at that point. But there was a real switch, and, and some of it was the government's affirmative action, which was a plan to make us equal pay, which we still aren't. But it was also <laughs> uh, to give us the permission to um, have the right to have gym time, have the right to have a career. Fifties um, and sixties, women were either a nurse, a secretary, stayed home, and the ones that did further education were rare. And it took well into the 70s and early 80s until that changed. And as soon as it changed, bingo, women's teams need women's therapists. Um, so it, it, it began to, uh, university said, we, we can't have just a man trainer. We're going to have, we have more women's teams now. We're going to have to bring some women in. Hmm. Um, so they started to, uh, they started to get some of the universities uh, hiring women. They started needed women for the national ski teams and stuff like that. So Sheridan started to open the door. Well, we can get more women in here because there's more jobs opening up. Wendy Hampson was the first one at Laurentian University, and I remember um, recommending her and dealing with their staff there and everything else and having that some of the staff call me about hiring a woman and all that kind of stuff. And she ended up being the head therapist, period. And that was a real breakthrough. And I remember Marcy Franklin starting her very first athletic therapy clinic in Oakfield because in Oakfield they knew about athletic therapy at the leading edge. And she got a clinic going. And they were great examples, too, of um, getting out there and getting recognized and and then the program started to accept more and we started to get women in dean's roles and women in presidential roles and stuff like that that started to fight for women more too but it was a slow process tell me about um the cata exam back in the day when you took it (laughs) i've heard some stories around the time you took it or something with cpr yeah it was in it was in yeah it was in it was in Winnipeg, and they had curtains in a gym, and you would go around to different stations, and you had to perform at different stations. They had a long written at the beginning. I think it was like nine to noon or something. Like it was a long exam. Um, a lot of it multiple choice. I don't know whether they use the NATA model for it or not, but. It, it was pretty comprehensive, which made it very hard for people who were military and didn't have the formal background training to get the written, to tell you the truth, at the beginning. But the practical was stations. And the first station I went to was uh, an NATA qualified. All of the testers had NATA. And most of them were military guys. But one of them was Ed Nolkowski from York University. And... His station was, I had to draw a floor pan for a clinic. And it had to show where the field was, where the emergency, how many tables, how I set up, and I had to draw a clinic. (laughs) 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 One One of the stations was, they had a, and I think it was Chuck Babcock, and he had a CPS book. 
it wasn't as thick as the the pharmaceutical Canadian pharmaceutical standards book is now, yeah, yeah. but it was it was a good three or four inches thick, <laughs> and the color of the pages so there was red for anti-inflammatants and yellow for um, you know painkiller. It was all color coded, but there was like a thousand different generic names in there. So what he did is he would take it, flip the page open, and point at one of the drugs. <laughs> and he'd say, okay, what does this drug do? And he gave me a name. And I knew by the color. <laughs> so if it's an anti-inflammatory, I'd say, decreases swelling. And he looks at me, whoa, right? <laughs> and what side effects? And I said, well, it can hurt your stomach. Oh! And then he'd flip it open again. <laughs> and I knew by the color code that was a painkiller, right? So anyway, it was it was funny. Then then there was a station with um to do CPR. And it was a, a, a mannequin that had a monitor in its chest and three lights, red, green, and yellow. And it was all wired to these the, these lights, but it was just like those recessions, really. So that was in the day of the precardial thump, where the very first <laughs> very first thing you did was thump the heart, and then you started your CPR. Well, I'm doing the open up your book. What kind of pharmaceutical product is that? And I could see in the curtains here that I was going to the dummy next, right? And I know who the person was, I won't mention it, but he was about to do the CPR thing, and he did the precardial thump. And he lifted up his hand, I don't know, a foot and a half, thumped it, and the dummy's feet and head hit together, and it fell, <laughs> fell off the table. And I'm watching this in the, <laughs> in the corner of my eye, just split. I was so nervous, but I was just splitting the gun. I couldn't stand it because the head and feet came right up together. And I forget who was monitoring that patient, but they had to set the whole thing up again for me, right? So anyway, I'm doing this, and I'm thinking, I'm doing great. And I got red. Oh, my God. And I ease up. I got a yellow because you want every compression to be perfect, right? Anyways, um, another station was taping, and I think I got a thumb, and I think I got a knee uh, or an ankle. I can't Maybe I think it was a knee. And it was like an MCL, and it was like a thumb spike. Like, it wasn't really hard. But you had two minutes. <laughs> and never mind that. This was in the day with an egg timer. So you can use, lose, like, 10 seconds if they don't, you know. So it was a freaking egg timer. I said, I said, you expect me to tape this? That's as long as it takes. I said, to cook an egg, not anyway. so Sitting there, ripping the tape, trying to put it around, doing it quickly. And it... I'll use the name because it's terrific. Sandy Archer had a special knee tape job. The derotation one that started at the ankle that he was teaching at U of A. So I guess he didn't realize how short two minutes are. Because <laughs> he, he was telling us after he started at the ankle to do his de-spiral, you know, uh, to, to take over for MCL and this part and whatever. And he got like four strips on it. <laughs> Looked more like an ankle tape job, right? What else? What else do we have to do? Um, anyway, it was 
And oh, the, the funny thing that happened to it, because it was just Joe Piccinini and myself were the only young people there. And we had to wait and they called us in. And we were to start at 12.15 and I was to start at 12.30. The two of us are waiting in this room. Two o'clock rolls around because they didn't realize it was how long and no one timed it. <laughs> so, they, so anyway, we're sitting there and, and Joe says, what do you think? And I said, I don't know. They're taking forever. If we have, This exam is four or five stations. We're going to take all day. He says, well, he says let's throw back a shot. So, and that's the other thing. <laughs> they had been telling us, they'd been telling us, you, you young whippersnappers aren't going to pass this. Just because you went to Sheridan doesn't mean, because there were physios there trying to pass it. There were paramedics there. There was only a few ATs, in all honesty. Wow. And, the, and most of the ATs that were in there, were actually uh, NATA certified because I was the first CATA coming out of the school, right? So the, none of them, like I thought, I, I want to do it now because I've already got a degree. It's going to be easier for me. I'm going to do it. And Joe had worked at, at, with, um, at U of T for a number of years before he took the course. So anyway, Joe says, hey, let's throw back one. Let's still relax. I said, okay. We barely got it. We threw back. I can't even remember. It was just a shot of something <laughs> in the hotel room. And just then they called us. Oh, where's my toothbrush? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh, we, we, we were terrified. You're absolutely terrified, both of us. And I remember throwing some back. And I don't think he even heard you drink. And I didn't either get it. Anyway, but it helped. <laughs> yeah, I think I think something like only seven passed. Wow, there might have been it might have been twenty five. There weren't that many people, but then they went partying after, which was the funniest thing. I don't know whether I should talk about that. You can talk about that. <laughs> it was the Viscount Gord Hotel, and I was the only woman there again. And they all sat at a table, and I won't tell you a lot of the details, but I will tell you that this singer came out, country and western. I was just so excited, and she was in white buxton, dressed like you wouldn't believe, beautiful. And right in front of us, we were in the front table, and all the guys are sitting there, hoo-hoo, and you know, I'm going, great, great, great. So she came out, she started dancing, she could really dance. And then there's a break, and I, they went on drinking. And then she comes from another set with another country and western song, but this time she takes off the buxton top. You know where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) I have never seen tassels in my life move like the tassels as she sang. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was um, that was a CATA conference. I think that was the the award night or something. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how many were in the association, but not very many, and they were mainly NATA. I had no idea that was going to happen, though. They're all looking at me, right? You enjoying this? <laughs> I can't. Oh, they, they, they get, there were sparklers on it. They had, like, sparklers. She was, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty funny. What's in your ZNA? That is a question our sponsor, Zenkai Sports, has for you. Are you interested in increasing your performance output, helping the environment, and doing less laundry? 
If you answered yes to any of those questions, please go to ZenkaiSports.com and check out the latest innovation in performance apparel. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping your cooler for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. I would highly recommend trying this amazing product, and I've teamed up with them so you can get 20% off your entire order. Just head over to ZenkaiSports.com and use the discount code LYM20. What was, what was the first... Um, well, it, it might be a year, it might be just a, a, a feeling uh, that you felt like there was, I, I can't use the word equality, maybe a sense of equity in the space between men and women in the CATA, like that the CATA had sort of grown up in your viewpoint. I, I think when we changed the name to Canadian Athletic Therapy Association, we were getting our own independence and becoming our own association. Um, I think the other the other thing I think why it changed a little bit is when we changed to a three-year program that had clinical skills and moved out of just uh, working with field teams and actually, like Marcy and others, actually do our own care in a clinic. Hmm. Um, and we changed the name and we increased the, the level of clinical skills and and fitness component more than just um, training them. We actually were doing incredible fitness work, like along the lines of what you do now. Uh, when we started to convert to all those things, we I think we became a, a much stronger entity, a much stronger force. Cool. Um, yeah, I think that was around eighty three, eighty four, somewhere in there. I, mean, I don't know when it. Yeah, I don't know when it became more women actually. I think it's when we moved to the clinical, being able to work in clinics, and that meant the woman could have a family. Mm. Um, and because before that, you were on the road. And that wasn't great for women getting married and families and stuff like that. Well, that's, uh, I was going to segue a different way, but actually I'll pivot off of that. How did, you, how did you navigate that? You've been married for quite a long time now. You've had your kids, and now your grandma and all that stuff. Like, how did you navigate that in those earlier years when maybe there wasn't even the, the sympathetic sort of ear around the reality of what that was? I, I was very, very fortunate. I'm very happily married and, and my kids, um, you know, they had their moments, but generally I, I were really good kids. But my husband was the most important thing and my kids were the, also the most important things. So I had no other friends and no other things. Like I didn't go out and do stuff. And, I worked and family mm-hmm. and, um, so I had the summers off, and I always took the entire summer, other than the Olympics that I went to, but generally I took the entire summer with my, my kids and family and every break and every holiday. So um, it, there was a very uh, de- devotion to family first. Mm. And I think what makes it very hard is I didn't have to go on the road or anything. Like with football, my kids weren't born yet. When my son was born in 82 is when I stopped doing the football and went full-time teaching at Sheridan. And um, I ran the clinic, but I was a full-time faculty member at that point. And so I always worked around the kids. And I was very fortunate in that I decided I'd treat after school. I've always treated 
ran the clinic, but I treated after school because I treated from five to six and I used the five to six time, time slot to hire a, a part-time person as a nanny and housekeeper. Mm. And that was the smartest thing I did. And I did that when the kids were about six or seven. And that meant that I had didn't have to do the wash loads first thing in the morning. Like we'd still did our meals, but it took the weight of a whole bunch of things off. So I could have quality time with them. Mm. And I highly suggest that to anybody work an extra hour, add it up and get them to clean the house. So you don't play cleaning and do stuff. And I kept on with, with my career because of that. Sage advice. At the most recent 2019 World Junior Hockey Championships in the Czech Republic, Team Canada's number one goalie was Nico Dawes. Nico is a great story. Heading into his NHL draft year, he was not on the Canadian team's radar. In the summer of 2019, Nico trained hard with the support of the great team at Shield Performance in Burlington, Ontario. He built up his body armor and lost 25 pounds. He came to the Guelph Storm camp in the best shape of his life and earned the number one spot for the defending OHL champs and then earned his spot with Team Canada on one of the hockey world's largest stages. One of the tools used by Nico was the Matrix Fitness S-Force Performance Trainer. The S-Force is a no-impact weight-bearing training tool that can improve fast-twitch muscle fiber, increase explosive performance, and support many conditioning objectives. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. For more information, please request the Matrix Fitness Sports Performance Package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Villeneuve at matrixfitness.com and mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. I'm going to use this moment to segue to a piece I do in my podcast. I have a book called The Day You Were Born that I discovered numerous years ago written by a woman named Linda Joyce from New York. It's it's a combination of astrology and numerology, and I actually found my purpose in it, which was quite powerful. But you are a Scorpio one, born November 19th, correct? Yes. So uh, your purpose is to balance independence and freedom with the need to make a difference in the world through helping those who have no voice. What doesn't kill me only makes me strong, Nitschke. The Scorpio one is strong, secretive, and competitive. When they're spiritual, they are perfectionists, and they refuse to bend even on the smallest detail. If they do not believe in a higher power, then anything goes. Lying becomes a talent, and they are capable of molding reality to fit their needs. Their childhood was not easy. Either their father was missing or he ruled with an iron hand. They need to learn to take their power and walk their own path. Obstacles are there to hone their strength in their emotions. Feelings are either controlled and hidden or out of control. If they choose to cause a cause to fight for it will be freedom and justice. Their persistent nature, their ability to observe and absorb, give them great artistic ability or people skills. With their great charisma, they find themselves either as the center of the party or they play the role of rebel and provoke authority, refusing to be a part of the group. Their desire for excellence can make them strive for physical or moral perfection. I won't go on. It goes on and on and on. You, you got one of the longer ones I've ever seen, but that's kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> You're complicated. That's because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Anything res- uh, uh, resonate in there for you, or does it sound completely different than you? No, it, it actually, I think it resonates pretty well. I'm, I'm shocked, actually. That's pretty cool. I wrote down the name of it. Yeah. Well, you know I'll be reading it. 
voracious reader that you are. So tell me the story of why you like, like uh, you know, I remember that that generation, Gary Cummings and Dave Campbell, and you know, you you're a part of that. Where there was kind of this shift of people taking osteopathy and sort of getting into that world. What drove that for you? Was it the need to sort of have greater clinical skills, or did something else instigate that interest in you? I, I uh, always used Sheridan College's um, continuing education funds, and they were like $800, that kind of thing, which meant that I could take a course or two every year, and I did. I took Feldenkrais, Alexander Technique, Acupuncture, like I took everything that came along, Roccobato's TMJ, I took Stanley Paris Adjustment, I took Muscle Energy from the original Fred Mitchell, I took Florence Kendall, I studied to her workshops and like I took everything I possibly could and and we didn't have much money so I did virtually use Sheridan's and I found that the courses I wanted to take more and more were um, things that osteopaths were teaching hmm. like like Upledger and like Barnes and some of those I, I, not that I wanted to do that but I wanted those manual skills and I also liked anything that involved mobilization manual using your hands to fix and I seem to have reached a point where I wasn't getting some people better as much as I would have liked to. And when I started to take these courses, it opened doors and the doors made me think, I, I want to be better at what I'm doing. And um, I actually uh, found out from a company called Candent that, make, that sells anatomical uh, posters and bones and all that kind of stuff to the osteopath that this course was being taught by Philippe Durel in Quebec in osteopathy in French. Well, that, I'm not, I don't speak French, unfortunately. So I asked the owner of Candent if he would please um, see if we could use French-Canadian translators and, and bring it here to Toronto. And Candent was going to offer his factory, uh, his uh, storage area, and we'd get French-Canadians to translate and bring the French teachers over. And they said, yes. So by the time we got it going, I told them I could fill it, and I did. So the very first class had a ton of ATs in it here in Toronto, Mm. Um, like maybe 15 out of the 30 were all ATs, and they were all like Doug Chase and Fred Corradini and Joe Rotella and Catherine Cartwright and Kathy Eight and Jan Anderson, and to name a few, but there are a lot. And uh, so... That was in my class. But when we finally got it, the, fir- the first class together, um, Philippe gave us the dates and none of us could do it. I was already lecturing on different things. Eight of them, six of them could. So six, which was Glenn Sprague, um, uh, Kathy Eight, uh, anyway, the initial six, Ed Bowman, um, they started in the following year, gave us a chance with him giving us the dates, even at better timing, that all of us set up to, to start started going. So it actually then went, um, because it was two years going, it went to Oise, and then it just took off after that. So um, <clears throat> it it actually grew from, from the Quebec school. Mm. What, what is it that you most enjoy about teaching? At the students. Yeah. Yeah, I I love I'm still doing workshops and I still see the, the students and sometimes I see ones that I taught in 1977 and haven't seen since it's like reunion time, 
And they all tell me the, the silly things I did. I'm just glad there was no phones back then that they could take pictures. I had too much fun at it. So I really enjoyed teaching. I liked passing on knowledge, but I liked passing on technical and manual skills, which is what we are losing in medicine right now. Hmm. Everything is, they can talk the talk and know how to fill in the blanks and know the academics, but they don't have the technical manual skills. And I'm not just medicine, which it's true of doctoring nurses, OT, PT, AT, not AT, thank goodness, but out there in that field, in furniture making, in jewelry making, in, in putting floors down, putting hardwood in, we bring in outside workers. We need the trades. Mm-hmm. We need to keep the trades. We're, we're actually giving people a skill, a lifetime skill, a lifetime employment. Hmm. Have you taught uh, any children of children, so to speak, in your career so far? Like people who you taught the, them at school and then that now, then they taught, you taught their kids? <laughs> I'm sure that's happened a few times. Well, to tell the truth, I'm treating grandkids of people that I treated at Sheridan in my first years as patients. <laughs> um, not quite, but I have a nephew that might go into athletic therapy, so that would be interesting. That's cool. Yeah, interesting. But yeah. I kept on saying these kids are getting younger every year. <laughs> every year I taught, but uh, no, I haven't quite done that. But I have, I have a lot of students now that have uh, children of all ages that hmm. you know, and it's really cool because they come and show me the pictures of them and. And, um, yeah, I stay close to, to a lot of them and I love doing the workshops. So we, I have one-on-one time and yeah, still, still like passing it along. Here again with another word from our sponsor, Zenkai Sports, the new disruptor in the performance apparel world. Zenkai uses a brand new technology that repels liquids, keeping you cooler during intense activity as the sweat evaporates naturally off your skin. This allows athletes to regulate body temperature easier and push themselves harder as we harness the power of our sweat. Sweat is our friend. Keep it on you. Zenkai Sports is also the only performance apparel company which is cotton-based. All of their gear is over 65% cotton and some pieces over 95%. Cotton is biodegradable, feels great against our skin, and is much better for our environment than synthetic-based apparel. Please go to ZenkaiSports.com for more information and for 20% off your entire order. Just use the discount code LYM20. You had mentioned you were over in Germany before uh, this um, teaching, and it sounds like you're teaching a lot uh, internationally. What well, what do you enjoy about the experience of traveling to other countries and ta- talking to people? Is it? Well, I haven't culture? traveled that much. Yeah. Mainly U.S. all over the place about modalities and a, a lot about athletic injury things, but mostly in Canada. I did get to Germany because of the advanced cranial work I'm doing now and advanced fascial work, which has only been in the last few years. Mm. I actually in, really enjoyed... Um, I don't mind being translated because it slows me down and I can think before my next sentence comes out. (laughs) It doesn't happen most of the time. But but, um, I found that the travel is very fatiguing. And with the six-hour time difference, you know, the minute you get there, you're teaching the next day, you don't have time to get caught up and all that kind of stuff. And it's so busy getting in there and back. Now I teach across Canada. I'm cutting down a little bit out west and out east for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'd, I'd like people to come more to me <laughs> and I'm, I'm tending to try and pull in a little bit now, but I, I, I'd love um, going and traveling to sightsee and see other things, but it, it usually is, is like, this was, uh, we were there for seven days. This was four days. So mm. I didn't get a lot of time, mm. but, um, but I do, I do like, I do like offering it in different areas and meeting different people and stuff. What is your biggest passion outside of your profession, what you do? I guess my grandkids would be number one. I have a strong, strong passion for family, but I also have um, a passion I, for golf. I golf. Mm. I belong to um, Markland Woods Golf Course. I love to golf. I also oil paint. Mm. And um, I actually had to decide between a career of an artist or athletic therapy or medicine and um i actually said i can always paint later when my body won't let me do stuff so when i retired in 2006 i asked my husband to um i had done things in between but i said get me some really good oil paints like for my birthday or christmas and and i'm gonna start painting again because i'm gonna be so bored when i leave sheridan yeah really so (laughs) Being the, the engineer that he he is, he bought me good oils, and then he also bought me an easel. It's about eight feet tall and about four feet across. It takes up our entire second family room. It's got a crank on it. To, anyway, so my little wee easel on it looks funny, but now I'm painting big ones, so he must have... But, uh, so I, I do that when I when I have rainy days on the summer that I'm off or the grandkids aren't coming over on a weekend and I've done five or six shows and sold quite a few of them over the years. And so it's, it's a passion and they're mainly landscapes, although I've done my sons and grandkids a little bit too, but. So -hmm. you can finally go back and paint that clinic for Ed Nowakowski. Oh yeah. I can do 3d now. (laughs) (laughs) There's the whirlpool. <laughs> what would what would be your biggest uh, piece of advice to a young person now who's just starting in the profession about how they craft a a career or their best career for themselves in in therapy? Um, number one, you have to have a good business sense of knowing what location, and you, you have to learn the ropes first. So you come out, you learn the ropes. Um, you work with someone or for someone for a split. You learn how to bill, what software to use, what's the best way to register or do I incorporate. You learn all of that, and you start to build a patient load. And if you want to get going quickly, you you do that with another recent grad. So the two of you are doing it. And then you find a location and start to move those people and then hit your community, hit the physicians, hit the orthopods, take around a pad of what you're doing go to some sporting events, and build your own clinic. And there's tons of examples of lots of people that have done that successfully, if they want the clinical mode. But the other thing is, while you do that, doors open. Opportunities come along that I never, like with ultrasound, I introduced the whole U.S. to 3 megahertz ultrasound, which was just, I knew so much about it, and some uh, American came to, a representative of Chattanooga came to my lecture and then said, would you come and teach this down in Chattanooga? And I'm saying, I don't think I want to go down there. Well, maybe. Okay. 
And then when I did it for Chattanooga, they produced ultrasounds with three megahertz. And every location that they opened went up. They wanted the dealers there wanted me to teach their people how to use it kind of thing. So I never would have got into all over the states if that I hadn't said, okay, I'll try that. Hmm. Um, I wrote books only because when my kids were born, I if I missed a class, no one else was teaching that class for me. So I decided I better have it in a book so that they can read it themselves if they have to. And if I'd known Dave McGee was writing one, I would have saved my time and not done it. But so I did it out of necessity and learned how to publish and learned how to, I have a publishing um, group now that does all my stuff. And I, then I did kept on going to the States to do these um, workshops to some of the same people. And I said, just buy a chart. So I produced wall charts. <laughs> I don't have to come here. You're going to look at this chart or this protocol. So I developed things to make my life easier mm. that um, widened the scope and then other doors open, mm. you know? Um, so it, it, those opportunities that come along, try them. And mm. It just broadens your base and then you're more marketable and, and, and you enjoy, I have the combination of treating three days a week, but I could work on workshops and I write material still and I research a lot and I, I have lots of stuff to do, you know, in, yeah, but grab anything that comes along. If you were to um, walk down the hallway and cross paths with Anne Hartley, who was starting to work football at Sheridan College, what would you say to her? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's a good way to bring this thing to uh, to a close. But thank you for, for sure. taking taking an hour of your day with me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, You're a wonderful. You, you have wonderful ways of uh, asking questions and bringing out good material. I I, I have a award I give out at Sheridan. And uh, I never know what to say, but just with your questions that you, you are able to enlighten even me on, on, on ways that I didn't think of before. So it's, it's delightful. And That's I, awesome. it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's Thank always, a, always a pleasure to bounce into you. And I, uh, I really uh, enjoy sort of coming and paying homage to some of the people who I've respected in the industry for many years. So thanks for taking the time. And I hope we run Thank into you. each other for a beer one of these days uh, at a CATA conference or something. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I go to Montreal to lecture at the CEO and some other stuff. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to get together. Reach out and let me know. I want to know what Dexter said. <laughs> you can listen to the podcast. <laughs> How do I do that? Uh, my podcast is called Leave Your Mark. It's on Apple Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. You just uh, ask a tech geek how to get on. Do you have an iPhone or are you a uh, non? I got an iPad. You're on an iPad. Okay, right so you can go on an iPad, go to Apple Podcasts, and look for Leave Your Mark, and then you can just download my podcast and listen to me. Good. I, I do listen to podcasts, so cool. I'll put you on there. Thanks so much. Thanks, Anne. Have a great day. Yep. You Bye. too. Thank you very much for that. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. 
music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>